0: Welcome to the Pentagon Labyrinth, the podcast of the Center for Defense Information, brought to you by the Strauss Military Reform Project at the Project on Government Oversight. I am really excited about what I have for you today, because this is truly a remarkable story. Part of what makes this remarkable is it is a story about a government document. As someone who reads a lot of government documents, I can tell you the vast majority of them fail to stand alone as good reading. But Marine Corps Doctrinal Publication 1, MCDP-1 Warfighting, does. It has actually transcended the military world. Many business leaders read it today to give them an edge over their competition. It has also impacted the world of sports because many coaches read it for the same reason. Even the US Forest Service uses it to fight fires. Warfighting is the capstone doctrinal publication of the United States Marine Corps. All the rest of its doctrinal publications and tactical manuals are supposed to be based on the ideas in this one small book. What makes Warfighting different is it isn't a how-to manual. It isn't a checklist that lays out step-by-step procedures. It doesn't say if you are facing this particular situation, then you take these steps in order to win. It's really a philosophical document. It describes how the Marine Corps thinks about warfare. It was first published as Fleet Marine Force Manual 1 in 1989. It came about when the Commandant of the Marine Corps at the time, General Al Gray, said he wanted a new book to capture the Corps' new doctrine of maneuver warfare. Before this, the Marine Corps followed the traditional American way of war, which was to leverage the industrial potential of the United States and use firepower to physically overpower the enemy in combat. This is more commonly referred to as a doctrine of firepower attrition warfare. And this is really nothing more than locking horns with the enemy with the idea of inflicting more casualties than he can bear before he does the same to you. Imagine the most destructive battles of the Civil War and World War I, and you will understand why attrition warfare may not be the best approach to achieving a meaningful victory. The Marine Corps, particularly in World War II, learned this the hard way. Some of the most famous battles in its history were really little more than brutal frontal assaults against well-prepared Japanese positions. Iwo Jima and Terror are being excellent examples. Following Vietnam, some leaders within the Marine Corps knew the Corps' ideas about tactics and warfighting had gone stale, and began casting about for a different approach. So in the late 1970s and early 1980s, a doctrinal revolution occurred. Led by a few innovators at first, most notably General Bernard Traynor and Colonel Mike Wiley, the Marine Corps reinvented the way it thought about warfare. A group of reformers, which eventually came to be known as the Maneuverists, saw warfare not simply as a physical clash of arms between two combatants, but primarily a mental and moral struggle. This different approach was best described by Fidelian Damien in his master's thesis, The Road to FM1, which is an excellent history that I highly recommend. In it, he explains... What distinguished a maneuver-based doctrine from attrition was that maneuver involved the temporal and psychological components, in addition to its counterpart's single-minded focus on the physical dimension of the battlefield. Instead of attacking an enemy head-on as in attrition warfare, maneuver looked to apply strength against selected enemy weakness through the use of speed and surprise. It used tempo as a weapon. The emphasis on speed meant decentralized control in an organization, While attrition operated primarily in the physical dimension of war, maneuver also involved the moral, that is, the psychological. The aim was not physical destruction, but to shatter the enemy's cohesion, organization, command, and psychological balance. All of this represented a massive change in direction for the Marine Corps. Like most big changes, it was met with a great deal of resistance. There was a vigorous debate inside the officer corps about these new ideas, and it was by no means certain that anything would really change. It took a strong leader at the top to settle the matter, at least officially. Decades later, there is still plenty of debate about what maneuver warfare really is and if the Marine Corps actually practices it. But on July 1, 1987, General Al Gray became the Commandant of the Marine Corps. General Gray had been active in the attrition versus maneuver debate, and he had come down strongly in favor of the latter. On his own authority, while serving as the commanding general, he declared maneuver warfare as the official doctrine of the 2nd Marine Division. And once he became commandant, he did the same for the entire Marine Corps. To begin the process of institutionalizing this change, General Gray decided the Marine Corps needed a document to clearly articulate its warfighting philosophy. And here's one of my favorite parts about this story. So the services each have whole offices and departments to write doctrine and tactical manuals. And these are usually written by committee, so the experts of a particular issue will gather and bat around ideas attempting to reach consensus. And it is the quest for consensus that generally waters down publications like this, almost to the point of meaninglessness. General Gray understood this well, and so he made the decision to assign the task of writing the capstone doctoral publication to one person. The result is a document that has much more coherence than do the vast majority of other similar documents. Writing the premier document for the Marine Corps was obviously a prestigious assignment, and there were plenty of high-ranking officers who wanted the job. Many of them saw this as a surefire ticket to the top. But rather than a colonel or a general, the job of writing the Marine Corps' most important document went to a captain. Anyone familiar with military ranks knows this is a fairly junior officer to be trusted with such an important assignment. The captain given this particular job was a man named John Schmidt and I had the opportunity to sit down with him recently to talk about how one of the most enduring documents in American military history came to be.
1: 1985, I I was assigned to the Doctrine Center. I just left 2nd Marine Division. I was a company commander in 2nd Light Armored Vehicle Battalion. Came to Quantico mid-1985, assigned to the Doctrine Center to write doctrine for LAV operations. Never ended up doing it. Ended up um, getting pulled off to do first Operational Handbook Six One, which was ground combat operations, it was considered the capstone uh, ground combat manual. It was it wasn't doctrinal yet; it was pre-doctrinal, and then it went from there to war fighting. So
0: you're working there, and this is in the in the mid 1980s. Can you kind of
1: describe
0: the uh, the atmosphere, doctrine-wise, in the Marine Corps in the mid 1980s?
1: Sure. Um, it was not uh, a hive of activity. The Doctrine Center was. Um, kind of a little backwater. Um, I think most of the officers were probably on their final tour. Um, Most of them were majors, lieutenant colonels. Uh, I was one of only two uh, captains in the building Um, and the other one was a prior enlisted communications officer who was on his final tour. Um, So it was not really a place for up-and-comers and and, and doctrine was not really considered a um, I don't think a really important job back then. Doctrine was at that time, written by committee. So, if you had to write a manual, what you did is you, um, you know, you got you, you got the charter to write the manual. You called uh, a workshop. You brought in stakeholders from around the Marine Corps who had to do with your topic. So, I, I wrote on ground combat. So, I would bring in people from the four Marine divisions and um, you know the basic school, UWS, representatives from from places like that, from the training establishment. Uh, we'd agree on an outline. We'd assign chapters. People would very quickly write the chapters and then they would leave. And then um, I was responsible or or the the doctrine rep was then responsible for editing uh, and trying to turn it into a complete manual. But it was a committee product and and, um, everybody essentially had veto authority. So you rarely said anything controversial. Um, And it it was not what I would call um, really useful, powerful information typically as a result.
0: Okay, before you were, before you were put in that position, this is right in the middle of the the attrition versus maneuver argument uh, that had been going on for a couple of years in the Marine Corps. At that point, how aware were you of of that doctrinal turmoil? I was
1: I was very aware of it. I um, got my commission in 1981, uh, went through the basic school and and infantry officer course, was assigned to Second Marine Division in January of '82 which was, as a platoon commander, which was just about the same time that General Gray assumed command of 2nd Marine Division. And uh, one of the first things he did was he he called all his officers and staff NCOs to the base theater. So we filled the base theater and he announced that maneuver warfare was the official doctrine of 2nd Marine Division and everybody needed to get on board. So um, And so we practiced maneuver warfare at 2nd Mar Mardiv. Um, and then every year he ran a big exercise at Fort Pickett, Virginia, to practice maneuver warfare concepts. And because I was in third battalion, six Marines who never deployed anywhere, uh, I went to three consecutive Fort Pickett exercises. So I, I had a good amount of practical experience. I'd started reading by then. I'd started reading, <coughs> excuse me, before then, uh, but got very interested in the maneuver warfare texts. Uh, uh, Bill uh, Bill uh, Lynn's maneuver warfare handbook. Uh, Rommel's attacks. I'd already read Sunza uh, Panzer Leader Panzer Battle all the you know all the the standard sources and and then some um, and I was reading the Gazette so I was aware of the the articles pro and con uh, in the Marine Corps Gazettes and I was very interested in it and just from an intellectual point of view uh, and because it was very empowering to junior officers I, I I thought maneuver warfare was great so I was very enthusiastic about it. okay now
0: uh most people, when we talk about maneuver warfare, we obviously think about John Boyd and Patterns of Conflict and, and all of the work that he did. Uh, how much contact did you have with him? Did you ever see him deliver Patterns of Conflict?
1: Sure. Um, he got invited to Quantico every so often to Command and Staff College, and he would give Patterns of Conflict. and uh, The Doctrine Center was just around the corner from Command and Staff, so I walked over there to— uh, to listen to Patterns of Conflict and I, I was introduced to John and then after I had written OH 6-1 before I wrote... What's, what's OH 6-1? OH say? 6-1, Operational Handbook 6-1 was the the pre-doctrinal ground combat operations capstone manual uh, and so after I had written that which gained me a little notoriety uh, I was introduced to John and he was working on a brief called Organic in, uh, Organic Design for Command and Control which he had not finished yet and I actually um, he was staying in his daughter's apartment up in Alexandria, and I actually spent two days. Uh, I traveled up up to Alexandria, and he took me personally through organic design, um, uh, just him and me in the living room of his daughter's apartment. And then, as so, he and I got to know each other, and he would call me on the phone and, and bounce ideas off me and that kind of thing. And, and so it was basically the same deal with his other briefings, I, you know, um, the um, the you know strategic game. Uh, and uh, the others when he developed those things I would usually get sort of a a personal introduction.
0: So you were subject to some of those midnight phone calls? I was
1: absolutely Um, 11 o'clock at night 7 o'clock on a Sunday morning um, time seemed to mean nothing to John Uh, And I know he must have, you know, when I answered the phone, he would say, you know, he must have introduced himself, but it didn't seem like it. It seemed like he just picked up in mid-sentence where we had left off the last time we were talking. And and, and he just talked, you know, for two hours. And I would just nod my head and go, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, just to let him know I was still there and still listening. But it it really wasn't a dialogue. It was really John Boyd, you know, looking for somebody to bounce his ideas off of to see how they sounded to him. Okay.
0: So... Describe the, the process, uh, or d- describe how you came to be the guy who wrote what became FMFM1. Uh,
1: I'm, I'm not completely sure how I became the guy. Like I said, I, I had written, well, I was assigned to the Doctrine Center to write LAV Doctrine, and I so I started. And uh, our problem was we didn't have any consistent basic doctrine. So I'd, I'd get to the chapter on LAV and the offense, and I'd say, well, what's our... What's our basic offensive doctrine we don't really have anything consistent and when I get to the chapter on defense, it was the same thing. well what's our basic defensive ground defensive doctrine we don't have any so I kept complaining enough that my boss said, "Fine, Schmidt, you write the Capstone ground combat manual so I wrote that and and um, I did not i i I started a workshop, but unlike um you know, previous manuals where you, you farmed out chapters and, and different people wrote them. I wanted to write the whole thing because I wanted, to, to have a, wanted it to have a consistent voice. But anyway, I wrote it and I kept sticking Maneuver Warfare into it because I was a true believer um, and, and I thought it was the way to go. And I saw myself as an insurgent, um, you know, trying to, trying to help with the insurgency. So I was sticking Maneuver Warfare into the manual. My, my boss, my colonel was taking it out um, and then uh, the book was done. And it was just ready to go to print, and Al Gray got announced as commandant of the Marine Corps, and my, my my colonel came to me and said, "We got to get maneuver warfare into the book." So I wrote a short chapter on maneuver warfare that we stuck into the front of the book, uh, which stuck out like a sore thumb because it didn't fit with anything in the rest of the book. But at least we had maneuver warfare in a proto doctrinal manual, which um, and it was fairly well received. So. Um, and so I, I think based on that, I, I was chosen as the guy to uh, to write FMFM1.
0: Right, because I think that's the most amazing part about this story, because you were a captain at the right. time. And when most of us think about military doctrinal manuals, we do think about committees of colonels and and generals getting involved. And But you were a, a captain working at a, a little branch in Quantico, and you drafted what became uh, an enduring— Capstone doctoral manual.
1: Yes, it, it, it was pretty amazing. There, everybody assumed it was going to be um, well. I, it, it had been made pretty clear that this was not going to be a committee product. It's, this was going to be L. Gray's book, and that he was going to pick an author. Everybody assumed it was going to be a colonel, and there were colonels lining up, you know, around the block to audition for the job, and um, and he was pulling people. Um, you know, he, Quantico was going to become the hub of of his movement. Uh, in fact, the Doctrine Center, that little backwater. Was going to become the, the the core of what became the war fighting center, um, and people and he was pulling people from all over the Marine Corps, uh, and everybody was assuming he was just going to pull somebody from somewhere and and install him and, and have him write the thing. I don't know why he decided to actually go into the existing branch uh, and use somebody from the inside, and and why he chose a captain to do it. That's all still a mystery to me.
0: And see, I think that's that's really interesting just because knowing how the bureaucracy works and how it can take literally years uh, to write even kind of a basic little manual to do one single procedure can take years and years to work through the entire system. Uh, the simple fact that uh, for the most part, this seems like it was a project of one captain and the commandant of the Marine Corps uh, that put this together. That, that's a that's a really amazing thing uh, to me. What was uh, how long did it take you to to draw up the the first draft of of FMFM one?
1: The first the first draft um, probably between two and three months. Um, it, it was an amazing process because there there was no committee and it was just me and General Gray. Um, He said, you're writing this book for me and nobody else. Uh, You don't have to please anybody else. You only have to please me. If anybody tries to unduly influence the book, you let me know about it and it will stop. Uh, you don't have to staff it through anybody and it was not staffed the book was never staffed He said you're free to talk to whomever you want to uh, but but um, the only person you have to please is me so it was just me and him um, and I had no other responsibilities and so I, I produced the first draft and I think about two to three months I don't I don't know for sure I know the whole thing took about about four uh, but but there was no requirement for an initial draft so so that date doesn't stick out in my mind I was just responsible for producing the final manual when I was ready to produce it and I, I was not given a timeline that was um, He told me to get it right and it was that's how long it took me So what was the the writing process
0: for you? Can you describe that one for me?
1: The sure um, I, I thought I was gonna have a lot of interaction with General Gray and get a lot of guidance and and be showing him drafts and, and those kinds of things and and that's not how it turned out. I met him Twice over the uh, during the course of the development of the manual, once at the beginning, and then once about halfway through. When in fact, I, I, I had a, a complete draft, and each of those sessions took about two hours, uh, and it was it was him and me. There were other people in the room, but it was the conversation was was him and me. In fact, we were in the conference room. I remember the very first one. We were in the conference room at the Doctrine Center, now the Warfighting Center, big conference table, and then a bunch of chairs around the outside of the room, the perimeter of the room. And he and I were sitting at the conference table. The rest of the chairs at the table were empty. It was just him and me. And then all these colonels and a couple of generals were sitting around the perimeter of the room. And it was, it was him and me talking and everybody else listening. Um, and I, I produced an outline. I had a rough outline for him. And because um, I, I, I wanted to give him an indication of where I was going. And of course, in any book like this, you start with the discussion of the principles of war because that's what you do because the principles of war are sacrosanct. So I said, okay, and of course we'll start chapter one with a discussion of the principles of war. And he goes, "What what principles of war, Captain?" And I, I was flabbergasted. I I didn't I didn't know what to say. I sputtered because, is it possible the commandant of the Marine Corps doesn't know what the principles of war are? So I said, "You know, sir, the principles of war," and he goes, "What principles?" And and I. Again, I, I didn't know what to say, and I sputtered some more. I said, the, principle, the principles of war, you know, moose musk, sir, you've heard of moose musk? And then he got this grin on his face, and he said, oh, those principles of war. And, and what I realized he was telling me was, why are you hung up on this list of nine things that J.F.C. Fuller came up with in 1921? You know, Can't you do better than that? And, and it was like he had punched me in the gut, because I, I realized what he was telling me was, you need to open up your aperture a little bit this is going to be a more revolutionary book than you're thinking of, right? The the principles of war are conventional thinking. You need to be thinking more creatively than that. And it was not until that point that I realized how uh, revolutionary this book was going to be. I think I, I had been thinking in much more conventional terms up to that point. And I went back to my little cubicle afterwards and I thought, oh my gosh, this is bigger than I realized. Um, everything everything is on the table here if the if the principles of war are on the table then everything is on the table and i started thinking much more ambitiously uh, about what this thing was going to become so that so that's kind of how our our relationship was he did not he did never gave me direct guidance he would not do it he would tell me sea stories and i'd ask him a question and he'd say let me tell you a story about little L. gray and he'd tell you a story about his experience and i'd and so I'd ask him another question, a more pointed question. He'd say, let me tell you another story about little L. Gray. But he would never, ever say, this is what I want you to do with the book. This is what I want you to say, anything like that. He was leaving it entirely up to me and, and expecting me um, to accomplish the mission. And it was a form of maneuver warfare. He was, he was, through these parables, he was expressing to me his commander's intent, but he was expecting me to figure out how to accomplish the mission
0: okay so so this is really just you in a cubicle in in quantico drafting this
1: me and sunza and Clausewitz and, and john boyd yes boyd at that time was sick um uh, so i was not uh, able to actually talk to him so boyd in this case was sort of was a primary source in the same way that Clausewitz was a source and Sunza was a source I, i'd been through all of boyd's briefings i had all of boyd's slides and notes and and uh, Destruction and Creation, which is the only thing he actually ever wrote. But I didn't a- actually have access to Boyd. So Boyd was the same sort of soy- source that Sunza and Clausewitz were um, at that time.
0: Okay. And then, so you, you draft this thing up, I'm assuming, on a typewriter in the mid-1980s.
1: and It was on a, a word processor. We had, um, we had uh, IBMs with uh, five megabytes of memory on them and um, writing in WordPerfect. And, yeah, so that's... Uh, that's what I did.
0: Okay, so when you had the, when you had the draft done, the, I, I remember reading this story about uh, driving over to uh, General Gray's house. Can you describe that process?
1: Sure. So actually wrote wrote a draft, took it to Gray, thought finally I'm going to get some guidance. I'm going to get some actual guidance. So we had, this was the second meeting. Um, and again, it's me and, me and him sitting at the table and everybody else sitting around the, the perimeter of the room and, and, and I'm and I said, "Did you read it?" And he goes, "Yes." And I go, "Wonderful." So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking he's going to tell me what's wrong and tell me what to fix. And he goes, "Let me tell you a story about Little El Gray." And so it was—it was that experience again. So then I, just based on that guidance, I'm making air quotes here, based on that guidance, I went back and I revised it and came up with a final draft, and it was ready to go to print. So, um, and so the, we produced the galley sheets and the and the signature page and. Um, I drive up to headquarters, Marine Corps, and I meet with them. It's a Friday afternoon, and uh, I go, "Well, you know, did you read it?" He goes, "Yeah." I'm not ready to sign it. I want to, I want to read it one more time over the weekend. Is that gonna, is that gonna, you know, be a problem for you? And I said, "No, it's not going to be a problem at all because I'm just going to be sleeping out here in your outer office all weekend, waiting for you Monday morning." He goes, "He goes, Captain, just go home, and I will sign it Monday. Come back at ten o'clock Monday morning." So I went home. I uh, had a miserable weekend, Miserable weekend. came back 10 o'clock uh, Monday morning, walk in, and his executive assistant was future Commandant Colonel Jim Jones. And Jones goes, Schmidt, what the hell are you doing here? I, and I go, the Commandant told me to come uh, meet him at 10 o'clock, he's going to sign my manual. And he goes, he's not here. And I go, I, well, he told me to be here, and he goes, he's, he's working at home this morning. Nobody has seen him. Uh, he goes, all right, I better call him. So he calls over there. And um, you know, I hear him talking on the phone, and he gets off the phone. And he goes, "All right, we're going to put you in the car and send you over to his quarters." So uh, I go downstairs, and the, the you know the commandant's car with the seventeen seventy-five license plates drive up, and uh, the corporal hops out and runs around and opens the door in the back, you know, for me to get in. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to. I'm not going to sit in the back seat by myself, you know, with a driver in the front. So I go, no, Corporal, I'm going to sit in the front seat next to you. So I I hopped in the front seat. He drove me over to to the Commandant's house. And we pull up to the front door, and and the steward opens the front door, and I come walking in, and I can hear General Gray's voice booming, you know, through the passageway. So I follow his voice into the kitchen. And and he's in the kitchen with all their dogs and his wife, and they're having an early breakfast. And... um, He's got like six gold or six black labs, and his wife's got this little, you know, pocketbook dog, and they're having and they're sitting there at the at the food preparation table, the stainless steel table, and they're eating jambalaya, which is not at all appealing to me. Uh, and he goes, "We're just having an early uh, early lunch. Why don't you join us?" And I go, "No, sir, that's okay. It's still kind of early." And he goes, "No, no, have some have some jambalaya." And I said, "No, seriously, sir, I'm I'm not hungry. That's really generous of you, but no, thanks." And he goes, "I made it," and I said, "Oh, I'd love some jambalaya, sir." So. So General Gray, you know, gets a bowl out and, and, and personally dishes me out some jambalaya, and they set it there on the table, and they both sit and watch me with these expectant grins on their faces as I as I choke down the jambalaya. I'm a very picky eater, and uh, and I so I finished it. And I go, sir, that was the best jambalaya I ever had, which was true because it was the only time I'd ever eaten jambalaya, uh, and and so he so you know he makes me eat the jambalaya, and he goes, okay, Captain, I will sign your book now. Uh, And so at first he gives me a tour of the Commandant's house. He takes me all through the Commandant's house and and he's explaining that, you know, we got this piece of furniture from the Queen of England and, you know, such and such a year and and so on and so forth. So I got a personalized tour and his six black labs are following us as we walk through the house. And we ended up in his library, which is a beautiful library with, you know, uh, floor to ceiling bookcases that are just filled with books, you know, with one of those ladders on wheels that, that slides around so that he can get, you know, to the top shelves. Just a, a gorgeous room. And so he and I just sat there and we talked about, you know, some of our favorite books for a little while. And then he said, give me the pen, and, he, and um, I, I gave him the pen and he signed it. Um, he did not change a single word in the main body of, of uh, the text. The only thing he changed was in the forward. It had said, I expect every Marine officer to read this book. And he inserted the words, and reread. Um, and so we had to get that, the forward redone. But um, otherwise, he signed it just as I had written it. Well, what was your reaction to that? Um, I, obviously, I was, I was really pleased. Um, at, at that point, I don't know that it completely surprised me because it, it, he made it pretty clear that he was not going to micromanage the book. Either he was going to like the book or he wasn't going to like the book. Um, But he wasn't going to micromanage the book, and so I guess at that stage, uh, and and the whole the whole experience was kind of surreal anyway. So I guess I'm not really sure what I wasn't really sure what to think about it.
0: After he signed the manual, what what was the the next part of that whole process?
1: So um, we had started giving some thought to how we get the word out, and um, uh, P. K. Van Riper, then a brigadier general. whom I'd met as a lieutenant colonel when he came out for that that OH 6-1 writing conference. He had been brought back to Quantico now to stand up Marine Corps University. And he was one of the guys, you know, I I said there were three sources, Sunza, Clausewitz, and Boyd were my three primary sources. The three people that I talked to the most were P.K. Van Riper, uh, Colonel Mike Wiley, and Bill Lind. I talked to Van Riper practically on a daily basis. I beat a path over to Command and Staff College where he had been installed. Uh, to stand up the university, and and I would go over there, and we would just talk theory and things like that, and Clausewitz and Sunza, and and sometimes I would I would bring a paragraph, and I'd literally just four or five sentences, because I knew the words needed to be perfect, uh, and so I would I would get him some feedback, and I talked to Wiley. Um, Pretty much about once a week, I'd show him a section of the book. When I had a chapter done, I would show him that, and, and I would again, I would just bounce ideas off him and, and get his feedback. And then about once a month, I would drive up to Washington and meet with Bill Lind. And Bill, Bill actually edited. Bill's a, a fantastic editor in addition to being just a really smart guy. Uh, and so he really helped me hone the language and, and, and tighten things up. So anyway, um, so I met with those guys. The point was, Van Riper was intimately involved in the project. And he said, you know, we've got to come up with a way to follow through on this. So he created uh, a road show. We called it the Road Show. And he took some of his, about four or five of his best instructors out of Command, Staff, uh, Command and Staff College and me, and we put together a, a, uh, a sort of a seminar that we took on the road to 1st Marine Division, 2nd Marine Division. Uh, we basically went by regiment. Um, you know, so we'd go out to 1st Marines, and there'd be an all-officers call, and we would go through FMFM1 with these guys, and then others supporting stuff. And and the book hadn't even come out at this point, so we were going around with paper copies of the book, which we would hand out and have them read it right there on the spot, and then talk about it chapter by chapter, and then collect them back up, you know, to take to the next regiment and that sort of thing. So, we were going around spreading the word that way, and then uh, Command and Staff College was working furiously to incorporate the material into… into their curricula, uh, Van Riper, uh, as the president of the university, he held a huge symposium. We all went out to the basic school. Every instructor from any of the schools at Quantico—it was like a three or four-day workshop at the basic school where everybody was required to stay, you know, to billet at the basic school. So I was—I shared a room with a couple of colonels, one of whom uh, uh, became the commandant of the Marine Corps later, uh, Jim Conway, and. Um, you know and so we had this this workshop where we talked about all these principles and how we were going to incorporate them into the schools and all that kind of stuff it was a really uh, kind of intense um, you know three or four days interesting
0: now have you been surprised because this book has gone all over the world I know there are plenty of foreign militaries that uh, that officially unofficially use FM FM one or now MCDP one uh, as Essentially, their primary capstone doctoral manual as well. Did you ever like? Is that anything that you ever envisioned?
1: No, I I, I did not um, did not envision that it was going to be reprinted as a as a, a leadership manual for business executives either. But it, but it has. Um, no, that all that all took me by that all took me by surprise. I, I don't think anybody anticipated it was going to catch on the way it did. So what about you personally,
0: when when this process was all over, after you did the road show, I mean, that obviously put you in the the spotlight and you were still a captain at that point, right? Right. What was was the reaction to all the colonels and generals that you ended up dealing with uh, after that?
1: Um, It it was mixed. I mean, there were a lot of captains that thought, oh, you know, cool, great, you know, good for you. Um, There was some jealousy. Um, I mean, there were some people that thought, uh, you know, who does Schmidt think he is? but that's just, that's just human nature. I think by and large, the, the institution took it in stride and was, was pretty supportive of it.
0: Okay, now you left Quantico uh, not too long after all of this uh, happened. What was it that uh, Al Gray, that General Gray told you? As, uh, right, as so your... I,
1: I was, uh, was due to leave anyway. Um, I actually got extended um, a year to, um, to work on the next manual, um, FMFM 1-1 campaigning. Uh, And so in the summer of 1990, I was due to leave. I had gotten my commission through Naval ROTC. I'd always really enjoyed it. I'd always thought in the back of my mind that I wanted to be a Marine officer instructor on a Naval ROTC staff. Uh, And that opportunity, my wife had gone back to graduate school at the University of Illinois, and the MOI position there had opened up, and I thought that would be wonderful. And Gray said, you know what? That would be perfect because when I retire, there is going to be some backlash against the guys who are perceived as Gray's boys. And you're one of them, and it might not be a bad idea for you to get a little bit further away from the flagpole. So, um, so that's that, that's not the main reason of how I ended up in Illinois. There were other factors, but um, but that was a consideration, and that's what Gray told me.
0: Okay, so you went out to be a marine officer instructor, uh, you know, teaching the 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 NROTC midshipmen, midshipmen yeah. and uh, but that was your last. That ended up being your last duty assignment. Yes. Uh, and then you left the Marine Corps
1: as a as a major. As a major, in 1993 took uh, took the voluntary separation incentive. So they were, the Marine Corps was downsizing after the Gulf War uh, and encouraging people to leave, and um, so I uh, I left. So, because I remember when
0: I was a lieutenant going through the basic school in 2005, and I, that was the first time I learned about, uh, a little bit about how Marine Corps doctoral Publication One came about, and it was written by a captain, because we all thought that was really interesting, and, uh, but then that you'd left as a major, and that was always a bit of a mystery to me. I never, uh, I didn't, at that point, I didn't follow up on that that much, but I did think that was really interesting that. The, the gentleman who wrote this manual didn't end up becoming a commandant of the Marine Corps essentially that was
1: my plan uh, I always uh, assumed I was gonna uh, stick around as long as I could um, but my wife had other other ideas it was just purely a family decision um, to uh, to leave the Marine Corps and pursue something else uh, no. but but yeah um, yeah I was I loved being a Marine officer and I and and my original plan had been to to make a career of it but um, for family reasons, it just didn't turn out that way.
0: Okay. So now years, what are we, 26, 27 years uh, later now? Yeah. Uh, what are your What are your thoughts about this? Uh, about this whole, because it's really a phenomena. Uh, you know, the maneuver warfare uh, arguments in the Marine Corps, Marine Corps Doctrine Publication 1, it's endured probably longer than I'm assuming that you thought it ever would.
1: Yeah. Um, well, it's it's been... Good for my career, Um, you know. So after I left active duty, uh, again it was not my plan, uh, but I ended up uh, getting into the doctrine and concept business. So I um, I wrote several more doctrinal manuals for the Marine Corps. I've written a number of concepts for the Marine Corps, the Navy, and the Joint um, the Joint Community. I've written a couple of capstone concepts, which are essentially the equivalent for to the Joint Community of what. Uh, Warfighting was to uh, to the Marine Corps, um, so I've been able to make a, a career out of that kind of stuff. So um, and so so that's been good. I, I, a lot of the so so FMFM one was just one manifestation of the maneuver warfare revolution. There were other organizational things going on and training and education changes and personnel changes and uh, and things like that. Um, as was bound to happen the pendulum swung, swung back a little bit the other way after Gray left, uh, and not all of the, the initiatives that got put into place stuck. But I, I, feel, I feel pretty good that the thing that has endured the most from the Gray Revolution was, the, was war fighting and the, the body of doctrine that surrounded it. What do you think is the biggest lesson to be learned for other junior
0: officers who are just bubbling with ideas? Uh, what kind of advice do you have for them?
1: um, do what feels right to you, what feels important to you. Don't, you know, you're always told about what your career path should be and you need this assignment and, and that assignment. And, um, I never worried about that. Um, I, I did the stuff that, that sounded like it was going to be rewarding. Uh, and I'd sort of let the, my career fall out the way it did. Um, and, and then, you know, be ready. I mean, I, I was not, I was not, I was, it was sort of it was well it was it was just luck that I was in the position I was in um, that I was able to uh, to write war fighting but I but I was ready I mean I, I prepared myself intellectually I'd done a lot of reading I, I had I had been thinking about it I had been writing about it uh, I'd written some articles in the Gazette um, I mean so intellectually I was ready when the opportunity came and I exploited the opportunity when it did um, so I would say you know develop yourself um, You know, focus on what you think is important, and then if the chance comes, when the chance comes, make sure you you don't miss it.
0: And that is a great message. So I really like this story because it shows just what can be accomplished when the right people are put in the right places and they set their mind to getting something done. Had General Gray been the typical go-along-to-get-along type, the bureaucracy would have almost certainly frustrated this effort by dragging their feet and waiting out the end of his term. Similarly, had he allowed the job to run through the normal official channels, it would have taken years and the result would have been nothing like the elegant document we have today. Well, thank you for listening. You can learn more about military reform, find links to what we've discussed, and leave us comments by visiting our website at pogo.org Strauss. There you can also learn about our other investigations and efforts to make the military more ethical and effective at a significantly lower cost please click like on our Facebook page at the Project on Government Oversight. You can also follow us on Twitter at, at Dan underscore Grazier and at Strauss Reform. In order to preserve our independence, POGO does not knowingly accept contributions from anyone who stands to benefit financially from our work. If you would like to get involved and help POGO and the Center for Defense Information's work promoting an effective, open, and affordable government, please consider making a donation. Just click on the red donation icon at the top of our homepage. I'm Dan Grazier, the Jack Shanahan Fellow here at the Center for Defense Information at POGO. Please stay tuned as we will continue to help you navigate the Pentagon Labyrinth.